This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and we'll see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne to acknowledge your holiness and say, your name is holy. And as we were taught to pray in Matthew 6, by the Lord Jesus Christ, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and may your kingdom come. May Christ come even today. May Christ come to the hearts of his people. May he draw his people to himself. As he said, when I've been lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Lord, may you cause your people to see their only hope and sufficiency and completeness in what Christ accomplished for them. For he is all and in all. And Lord, we just thank you for the gospel of free and sovereign grace, the gospel of free justification on account of the work of Christ. Lord, what a wonderful blessing that you've given us that there shall not be any sin to condemn, there shall not be anyone to condemn because Christ paid it all. What a gospel, what a savior. We pray now, Lord, for grace to hear your message that you've given us. And we just pray for this message also as it goes out, that it will accomplish the work that it, you have given it for, that as many as have been appointed to hear, will hear. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in First Samuel 2, verses 12 to 26. Not one Samuel. <laughs> First Samuel 2 First Samuel 2 verses 12 to 26 Now the sons of Eli were corrupt they did not know the Lord and the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the men who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. 
And if the men say to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he had everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and man. Sounds like this child Samuel is a type of Christ. That's exactly the same expression that is said of Jesus, right? He grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and man. Anyway, our second title is Who Can Mediate Between God and Man? Who can mediate between God and man? Or who will intercede for a sinner who sins against God? Or we can also say the qualifications of a mediator. The qualifications of a mediator. Or the need of a mediator. Or the need of a mediator. And this is the Lord's table. And as always, we preach the gospel of Christ and his finished work in the salvation of his people. And we can't have the gospel without understanding what the problem is. The gospel is only good news when one listens or hears it as good news. It may not be good news for others. But if it speaks to your particular need, it has to be the best use. It has to be good news. Amnesty is not good news to one who has citizenship. They don't care for amnesty. But it is good news for the illegal immigrant. It's good news for them. A life jacket is very good news for one who is drowning in water. I'm sure a lot of people in the Titanic could have used some more life jackets. And getting more, a shipment of more life jackets would have been very, very good news for them. But a life jacket is not so good news for someone who just wants to go and hang out at the mall. They have no use for it. 
And unless one understands and appreciates that they are a sinner, and God is angry at sinners every day, and does not save people just because, then the gospel will never be good news. Sinners do not understand what their real problem is, and none is able to understand what the real problem is unless and until God reveals it to them. Men are not able to know that they are in trouble. They think they just die because they get old. They don't realize that they die because of sin. As the fallen, we all have all kinds of issues. We suffer from all kinds of infirmities that we were talking about earlier. We have problems with relationships. We have money problems, sicknesses, raising children, trying to be important, self-esteem issues. (laughs) If only we could find a pill that raises people's self-esteem, then all our troubles will just wash away. And we'll take business away from Oprah and Dr. Phil. (laughs) But we have a much bigger problem than self-esteem. We have a much bigger problem than anything that we can imagine. We have a God problem. We have a God problem. God is holy, which means he is set apart from all of his creation. He is nothing like anything in the created world. He is perfect, and his perfection causes us problems. If God was not perfect, he would not care about our sin. Actually, there would not be any sin to worry about because sin means lack of perfection. It is failing to meet the mark of perfection. So if God was not perfect, we would not be worrying about sin at all. God's justice is driven by his perfection. And the gospel is ultimately God's defense and display of his own perfection. If God was not perfect, everything would just be fine and dandy. We'd just be kicking it and partying all day and all night and no one would go to hell. We could even just bribe our way into wherever God is and just show up. Like, I'm here, I brought my clothes, <laughs> and I'm here to stay. But the command that the soul that sins must die is only so because of God's perfection. It's God's perfection that is driving this. Death only comes because of God's perfection. And his perfection demands atonement by death. His perfection demands atonement by death where sin exists. And without death, there's no remission of sin. Without death, there's no canceling of sin. You can't cancel sin without death. But not just any kind of death. The death by one who is holy as God is holy. One who is as perfect as God is perfect. God cannot compromise on his perfection. He does not grade on a curve. His perfection is such that nothing is pure in his own eyes. That's what the book of Job says. 
There's nothing that is pure in his own eyes. Nothing of the created world is pure in his own eyes. He doesn't even trust his own holy angels. That's what the book of Job said. So his perfection is such that he has decked himself and cast himself in a light that no man can approach. And yet he demands that all men have to approach him. He encases himself in majesty and power and glory that cannot be approached by man. And yet he says, you have to approach me. (laughs) You have to approach me. And yet he has also said, no man shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall not appear before him empty-handed. And so the question then is, what are you going to bring before him? A bag of Doritos? Some hot chicken wings? Your works. What is it that you're going to bring before him? If we think we can bring anything before God that was made from human factories and labor, then we do not understand who God is and the gospel is not good news. The gospel is not good news as long as we think there's something that we can do in and by ourselves that we can bring to God as to be accepted by him. The gospel is not good news. But let us hear this. In First Samuel 2, we are told about Eli's sons and their sins. And we'll go back to the text that we read. We'll start from verse 12. And we'll read verses 12 to 16. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. See the depravity? (laughs) So this is what is happening. The sons of Eli were priests. They served in the tabernacle, and they were corrupting the priesthood. They were corrupt before the Lord. They were not following the commandments that God had given as to how the sacrifices were to be handled. They were doing whatever was right in their own eyes and taking offerings to the Lord in contravention of the law. According to the law, this is what was supposed to happen. Leviticus 7, 28 to 34. Leviticus 7, 28 to 34. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord, The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. 
and the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons. So the priest shall burn the fat on the altar. The fat from the sacrifice was supposed to be given to the priest, and the priest was supposed to make that offering of the fat. But Eli's sons were taking the fat. <laughs> they were taking everything. Also, the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of the peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron and the priests and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. So God really made a provision for them to use the remainder of the carcass. But they had to offer their fat. And then they had their portion of the sacrifice that they could consume. So the Lord had already instructed that of the sacrifice brought to be offered, the priests were to have a portion to themselves and the rest was to be offered first to the Lord as a peace or burnt offering. But Eli's sons decided to expand the boundaries of what the Lord had commanded them to do. Like Nadab and Abihu before them, Aaron's two sons, who burned a strange fire before the Lord and God killed, these also profaned the proper worship and approach of God and were killed. And the reason they did that was because they did not know the Lord. That's a heavy statement. They did all this crazy stuff because they did not know the Lord. The priests were appointed to be the ones who went to God on behalf of the people. They were the mediators between God's people and God himself. And they were supposed by that very position, they were supposed to know who God is. They were supposed to know who God is. They were priests who did not know the Lord. And there are many preachers today who are in the pulpits who do not know who the Lord is. They do not know that the Lord is holy and is to be feared and revered by those who approach him. In Leviticus 22, verse 2, the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name, but by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. That they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. So the children of Israel had these instructions. Eli's sons knew about this instruction. Don't play with my sacrifices. And after God had killed Nadab and Abihu, Moses came and said to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, This is what the Lord spoke saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Non-negotiable. Eli's sons 
as Aaron stands before them, did not know that you do not bring your own ideas and try to improve or mix with the things that God has commanded. King Uzziah also died after he got proud because of his success. King Uzziah had military conquest of all the nations around him. He had a very good economy. Everything was working for him. Strong military, defeating all his enemies. And so he got proud and decided to offer incense to the Lord himself. Like, look at me. I am so good. I am going to go ahead and offer incense to the Lord, which he did not command the king to do. (laughs) This was a work only for the priests. And the Lord struck him with leprosy. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 26. Let's go there. 16 to 19. Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 19. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So, Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, who are set aside for that work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. (laughs) And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. The Lord smote him with leprosy. And the rest of his life until he died, he had leprosy. Why? Because He failed to distinguish between the common and the uncommon. He went beyond the borders and the boundaries that God had given him. Christ alone was to hold all the three offices that were in Israel in himself. The prophet, the king, and the priest. And King Uzziah is going beyond what God has called him to do. He is only supposed to be a king. He can't be a priest. The fulfillment of all those functions were all to be in the one person, Jesus Christ. Not in Uzziah taking up more than what God had commanded him. So he wanted to have the fullness of Christ in himself. That's the problem. So he got killed. So they were not sanctifying the Lord as holy, as separate before them. King Uzziah, Aaron's sons, Eli's sons, did not treat the Lord as holy. They were treating their work of priesthood as a common work. And God is going to kill them specifically, or he killed them specifically, because they were profaning the work of Christ, of whom that work foreshadowed. And God was so upset with Eli's sons, that he said to Eli, that the sins of his sons were never to be atoned for. In 1 Samuel 3, 14. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for 
by sacrifice or offering forever. They were reprobates. They were sons of perdition. God says there's no way, there's no atonement that is going to be made for these sons of Eli. Do you see how serious God is about his business? And many people do not know the Lord. They do not know that he is holy and righteous. So they think they can bring whatever sacrifice they want before him and approach him whichever way they want. Whichever way. As long as it makes sense to me, that's what I'm going to do. And that is why people say, rest in peace to people who died not knowing Jesus. Rest in peace. No, you're not resting in peace if you did not die in Christ. The sacrifice of good works plus Jesus is a bad sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that God accepts. That is a recipe to get killed. But see what else the sons of Eli were doing. Verse 15 and 16. Also before they burned the fat, we back to First Samuel 2. Also, they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he would not take boiled meat from you, but raw. Before they burned the fat. Before they burned the fat. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. God is saying, before you can partake of any of the blessings in Christ, the sacrifice has to be given first. Christ has to be offered first. But these guys were already trying to partake of the blessings before the sacrifice itself had been offered. So they had the cut before the horse. So, According to the law, as I said, they were supposed to bend the fat first to the Lord and then later take their portion. So they prioritized themselves before the Lord. They received the worship of the sacrifice to themselves that was supposed to go to God. See us. See us stuff. In Hebrews 10, 29, the writer of Hebrews says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. So Eli's sons are in serious trouble. Why? Because they are trampling the Son of God underfoot. They are counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing. But it did not stop there. Eli's sons became involved in ritual fornication, right at the tabernacle, right at the place that God said this was going to be his meeting place with his people. Eli's sons were profane. They were irreverent in their practice. They did not discern spiritual things. They were natural men. And there are many natural men who are working in many tabernacles across the world who are committing the sins of Eli's sons, and yet they go around calling themselves apostles, prophets, and men of God. And it is not pretty, unless the Lord grants them repentance. So, 
what else did the sons of Eli do? Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he had everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So the sons of Eli were sleeping with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. What boldness. <laughs> Just some bold young fellows. Not even afraid of anything. So Eli said to them, verse 23 and 24, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Nor my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear you make the Lord's people transgress. So Eli says, No sons, I hear of your evil dealings. A very bad report and you are causing the Lord's people to sin. And Eli warned his sons and said, Listen kids, <laughs> if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? What is Eli saying? Eli is saying, if a man sins against another man, God will judge that man. God is able to mediate for that man that has been wronged and bring restitution. God is able to intercede between the men. But ultimately, all sin is against God. But in this case, Eli's sons are not stealing from their neighbors. They are profaning the very copy and shadow of the heavenly tabernacle and worship. If you still remember the instructions that were given to Moses, he was given a copy, the very copy and shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. And these guys are right in there and doing this business. So they are directly profaning God himself. And so Eli said, sons, but if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because they did not exercise their free will. Because the Lord desired to kill them. So what is Eli saying again? Eli is saying, sinning against God is a serious problem and it cannot be solved by anything that can be found in man. You can't sweet talk God into forgiving a person. There's no man who is diplomatic enough. You can't send John Kerry to intercede for you before God. There's no man who is diplomatic enough and can pull enough strings to mediate and intercede for one who sins against the holy God. Eli says, my sons, given the nature of your sin, you have a whole problem. Your sin is so great, it needs a whole person to speak to God on your behalf. You and I have sinned against God, and we also had the same situation as Eli's sons. Our sin was not just against some other man. Our sin was against God. And because of that, we need a who person to deliver us. A who person to intercede for us before God. A who person that God can actually listen to. But before we get to the who person, we are told by the writer of 
First Samuel, that nevertheless they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. The sons of Eli did not heed the voice of their father. Why? Because the Lord desired to kill them. The Lord desired to put them to death. What is that saying? It is saying the Lord did not grant them repentance so as to turn away from their sin because he intended to kill them. So what is that saying? Is that saying sinful men are able to repent by themselves? Is that saying sinful men are able to repent by themselves? Absolutely not. What do we see? Who causes men to repent? According to this teaching, it is God who causes repentance. Repentance, which is a turning away from anything that is unrighteous to that which is righteous, whether it's change of mind or stopping from doing anything, is only by the will and power of God. Men by themselves are not able to stop sinning. Men by themselves are not able to turn to God. It's impossible. Men are unable to be persuaded to truth if God does not persuade them. And so the Lord desired to kill them, and so they did not repent. See the connection. They did not repent, not because they were stubborn, which they were, but the reason why they did not repent is because God desired to kill them. And so he did not give them repentance. So what is that saying in the context of salvation? It is saying if you believe in Christ, you did not do that by your own power of choice. Not by your will. It is only because God did not desire to kill you. That's the only reason. He did not desire to kill you. So if you believe in Christ Jesus and his gospel, guess what it means? It means God did not desire to kill you. And that's good news. Praise the Lord who granted grace and gave us the will and the power to repent to Christ. Because he has not done that with everybody. But let us work the whole problem again. Because that has to be answered. Eli's question still has to be answered. We shall intercede for someone who sins against God. Eli knows who God is. And knows that a sinner needs more than good works to go between them and God. Eli knows that. Eli knows that a sinner needs a who person. They need a mediator between them and God. But let us see if that was Job's understanding of the same issue. Let us see if God has taught this somewhere else other than here. Let's go to Job 9. And we're just going to go through the whole chapter. But it speaks to everything that we're talking about. Job 9, verses 1 to 35. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength who has hardened himself against him and prospered. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. 
He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, the Orion, and the Pleiades in the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. Verse 16, if I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. Verse 23. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? <laughs> now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say, I'll forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile, I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. I know, even though I'm blameless, I know you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, verse 29, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me, for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let the dread of him terrify me. Then I will speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. So we're going to draw some observations about God from Job. Because that will help us to also answer the same question that Eli posed for his sons. We'll start with verse 2, 3 and 4. Truly, Job says, truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength who has hardened himself against him and prospered. Job says, can a man be righteous before God? Given what he has already said, that's a rhetoric question. The answer is no, impossible. 
But many people do not know that. And if anyone tried to argue with him, Job says, God could just ignore them with no consequence to him. Just being ignored. It sucks to be ignored. (laughs) But God can ignore a person for eternity and never answer them. That's terrible. He can ignore a person for eternity and not be concerned about it. But Job says, even if he answered, he is wise and mighty in strength who could prosper or succeed contending with him. What are your chances of even being able to overcome him with your arguments? Verse 12, if he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Or it sounds like the potter's freedom. It sounds like he's talking about the potter and the clay and the power of the potter to do whatever he wants. That's absolute sovereignty. And many pulpits do not know this God of Job. (laughs) They want to question him and say, what are you doing? Why are you making some vessels for honor and others for dishonor? Don't you know that is not nice God to do? You can't do that. That's not nice. And that sounds like Romans 9 theology. Romans 9, 19 to 20 says, You say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, all men, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you met? me like this. If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? So Job as Paul is arguing that a creature has no right to question God. To question God and his ways, period. And yet there are many high-sounding theologies that have been formulated to try and make God approachable to men. To make him subject to our opinions. Make him like Gandhi or the Dalai Lama. To make him afraid of what we creatures think of him. If he does things that we don't like. Or things that we don't approve. Or things that we think he should not do. To say to God, what are you doing? is to show that one does not know who they are talking to. Period. To ask God why he did certain things the way that he did them, just the thought of doing it means they don't know who God is. And they need a good spanking from him to correct their theology. God is not running for a senate seat in heaven. He is God by himself. Job says, in verse 18, God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. The allies of the proud, the devil and his minions, lie prostrate beneath him like puppies. The sovereignty, the devil and his angels, they lie prostrate beneath him. Job says, How then, verse 14, 15, and 16, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? 
For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Job says, even though he was righteous, instead of standing on his own righteousness before God, he would rather retreat into the safety of asking God for mercy because those are better terms of talking to God. <laughs> and because that is the only way that God will deal with a sinner. Mercy is the only way to approach God. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Son of David, have mercy on me. And when you start talking like that, you begin to talk to God as one with wisdom and understanding. Verse 19 to 22. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless. Yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. Just gives up. Job says, even if I could take God to court. To argue my case. Who is able to go to him. To summon him. To come to court and have a hearing with Job. Who is able to get to God. And bring him and summon him to come to court. And who is the judge who can go to God and bind him with the authority of the court. As to bring God down and have him show up at the courthouse at 9 in the morning. Who is that? What state trooper can deliver a summons to God and say, oh by the way, you have to show up at the court. You have a speeding ticket. And even if he were to show up, and though I were righteous, guess what? I have foot and mouth disease. My own mouth would condemn me. Even if you were to surprise me by showing up, but the moment that I open my mouth, guess what? My mouth is going to condemn me right away. I'm going to be found guilty still. As soon as you get before God, your mouth will start to condemn you before you even open it, before you even say a word. It happened to Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6, let's go there. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, or we are back to King Uzziah, <laughs> I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see what Isaiah is saying? Remember what was the sin of Uzziah? Uzziah wanted to make himself a priest. And when the Lord killed him, Isaiah in a vision, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne as king. And the train of his robe filled the temple as a priest. <laughs> we don't need you, Uzziah. That's not for you. That's for me. So Isaiah in this vision, he saw the Lord on his throne. And above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke, not those smoke machines. <laughs> so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of us. At this point, nobody had even talked to Isaiah. He just saw the vision of the Lord. And all he could say is, woe is me. I am so undone. Isaiah's mouth condemned him to be unrighteous. And yet he was the best of man in Israel. He was the prophet of God in Israel. But as soon as he sees the Lord, guess what? War is me. I am so undone. If you see the Lord in his glory, your mouth will condemn you. And the reason why people are not preaching the true gospel is because they have not seen the glory of the Lord. They are not understanding the glory of the Lord. And so Job says, though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. His mouth will prove him perverse. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. Or he thinks he's blameless, but then I don't really know myself. I don't really know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> Job says in verse 28 to 31, I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. Job says, in spite of his righteousness and blamelessness, God will still not hold him innocent. And so he gives up on standing on his own righteousness before God. Job is in a conundrum. He sees himself righteous, and yet he knows that God will not declare him to be righteous based on himself. He says, if I'm condemned, why then do I labor in vain? Why labor to be righteous and to prove my own innocence if I'm going to be condemned anyway? Give up. Sounds like the gospel. Give up on your self-righteousness efforts. He's still going to find you not innocent. He's still going to find you not blameless. Yes, you labor in vain if you try to stand before him by your own righteousness, by your own works. Job says, even if I wash myself with snow water, very clean water, uncontaminated water, untainted water, and cleanse my hands with soap, you still find sin in me. You will still find sin in me. You will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. My own clothes will abhor me. What clothes job? The clothes of his own righteousness. The clothes of his own self-righteousness. It sounds like Job has read the book of Jeremiah already before it was written. <laughs> Jeremiah 2.22 For though you wash yourself with lye, and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. 
Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap and use much bleach, whatever detergent that you can buy for your laundry, God says, yet your iniquity is mugged before me. So what is the solution, Job? Do we have a solution out of this? Verses 32 to 34. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on Aspoth. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify you. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job realizes that God is not a man. That's the first realization that people need to have before they understand the gospel. They need to understand that God is not a man as Job is. That he may answer him. God has no obligation to answer anybody. Job realizes what a lot of sinners do not realize. That God is not a man that they should question him. Job knows that God is absolutely sovereign. And this, my friends, is the reason why God, when he showed up, vindicated Job as righteous. With all this theology, God says Job was on point. He has spoken that which is right about me. That's what God said. Job has spoken that which is right about me. And yet this is the kind of theology that upsets a lot of people. They don't like to hear what Job is saying. They think Job was just a proud guy. But Job is telling the truth. Job realizes that he has no rights before God. No rights. He has already argued that his righteousness is nothing before God. And so Job does not try to balance God and himself. He completely gives up on himself and says, Yes, I am just a creature before him. And as a creature, Job says, I am a man and I can't take God to court because I have no rights and I don't have the power to summon him. We could not go together to court and yet the theology of many pulpits, even in the so-called reformed pulpits, take men and God to court together. Job says in verse 33, to 35. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on Aspoth, let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job says, I have a huge problem, friends. My problem is that God is God and I'm not. That's his argument. My problem is I have realized that God is God and I am not. And if I have to talk to him, I need a mediator, an umpire to go between us, one who may lay his hand on both of us. Is it umpire or umpire? An umpire, right? An umpire. An umpire to go between us, one who may lay his hand on both of us. What is that saying? What is Job asking for? Job is looking for a who. 
the problem that Job has has gone beyond what Job can do. Because he has already said, God is so mighty, he's so wise, he can ignore me and he can always find me guilty. Even if I don't do anything. Even if I'm just sitting in my room all my life, God will show up and say, you're a sinner. You're guilty. And, and how are you going to appeal? And to whom are you going to appeal? And who are you going to go with to God and say, that judgment was not right. You need to change it. That was not fair. That was not right. We, we, we live in a, <laughs> okay, in a nice society. We, we, we got to <laughs> be nice to people. And God, you need to be nice to people. You are hurting people's feelings. <laughs> no, you don't do that with God, okay? Job's problem cannot be solved by anything but a who. Job wants someone who is unlike himself, who can lay his hands on both God and on Job. One who can bridge the gap between Job and God that they may both talk to each other in peace. That's Job's request. One that can hear Job's problem and advocate for him, but also who can touch God and be heard by him and be heard by God. One that God listens to. One who is heard by both God and Job one who can hear the plight of man. But Job here is standing on the side of the plight of man, a sinful man. Job is saying, I want one who can say, Father, I know you always hear me. One who can speak to man as a man and not terrify them. You see what Job is saying? One that can relate to Job as a man. And not terrify Job. And also speak to God as God and not be terrified by God. Listen again to Job. Verse 34. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. What would this umpire, this mediator do for Job? This umpire would cause God to remove his rod away from Job. This umpire is one that God actually listens to. The rod of his anger needs to be removed from Job and cause Job not to be terrified of him. What is that rod? It is the rod of condemnation. Because Job has argued for his innocence and his blamelessness and he said, guess what? He's still going to find me guilty. <laughs> Why Job? Because Job is in the loins of the first Adam. So no matter what Job does not do or do, Job is always going to be found guilty because of his father, Adam. But you can reason this way, that the rod also is the rod of God's law. Is the rod of God's law. He wants this umpire to come and remove the rod of God's law. This is the gospel, by the way. This is the Holy Spirit teaching the gospel. Did we have the law of Moses then? No. But was God anticipating to bring it? Yes. Was God already preaching the gospel? Yes. As Job is, is doing, Job is preaching the gospel. This is the gospel. So what is Job saying? Job is saying, Romans 7, 24, 25. All wretched men that I am. Is that not what Job is saying? All wretched men that I am, who will deliver me 
from this body of death? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Is that not Job's yearning? Is that not Job's cry? Is that not the cry of all who are born again? Is that not the cry of all of God's children? Who shall deliver me? You see, it's a who problem. Not what you can do. It has gone beyond what you can do. Your problem requires a who person now. This was Paul's problem. This was the problem that Eli's sons had. And that's what the father was trying to communicate to them. Who shall deliver you from this body of death, my sons? You have sinned against the holy God. If you sin against God, who will intercede for you? Apostle Paul said, verse 25, Romans 7, I thank God. See where the solution is coming from. (laughs) I thank God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I thank God. Is that all you have to say? Exactly. That's all there is to say. I thank God through Jesus Christ. I found my who. Job said, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Why Paul? Why Job? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Job was saying, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why Job? Did Job understand this? Let's see if Job also understood this theology right. Job 19, 25 to 27. This is Job's understanding of his deliverance. Job has found himself in this corner that he can't be delivered. He has found that he can't be righteous in himself. No matter how long and hard he tried. God will still find him guilty. But Job says, Job 19, 25 to 27. For I know, what do you know, Job? I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. He shall stand at last on the earth. Who ever stood on the earth? The Redeemer of Job. Who is that? Verse 26. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What is Job saying? Job is saying, his Redeemer lives. His Redeemer, Christ, lived. He died, and Job's hope is also in the resurrection of Christ. Job is saying, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, his Redeemer, because he lives and he ever makes intercession. Why? Because they have found a who? They found a deliverer who ever lives to make intercession. One who can lay his hands on both God and man and talk to both. What is that saying? It is saying Job's solution This Redeemer is a (laughs) God-man. He is a God-man. Job and Eli 
were telling us about the qualifications of an intercessor, a true mediator between God and man. That person has to be a Godman if God has to hear them. And God surely does hear his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Christ was made just like us and yet without sin. He was born of a woman and he was tested, tempted in all things just like us, but without sin. And so he is able to be compassionate to us. So he can stand in the feet of Job and understand what Job is talking about. And yet also because he is God, he is able to ever intercede for Job before God. The Redeemer that Job was yearning for is the one who is in the presence of God. He is God himself. <laughs> and so, Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, to For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who did what? Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One mediator between God and man. So what are we saying? We are saying, if you have not found your who, you have a serious problem. Salvation is a who problem. If you rest your hope in the Dalai Lama and think that is your who, who can touch God and man and be heard by God, then good for you. And if you deny that Jesus is the God-man and still call yourself a Christian, then you still have a problem. Salvation comes down to you finding a who person that can speak on your behalf to God and be heard. For those who have found their who in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who have found they are who in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not by works and cannot be by works. Salvation is only about the Redeemer, the who person, the mediator, the intercessor who goes between you and God. Talk to Job and he will teach you. You can never earn your right to speak to God. You can never. It's impossible. Because Job said, even if I were to talk to him, he could go for a thousand years and not even answer me. <laughs> so you can never earn a right to talk to him. If he allows you to talk to him, it's only by grace. Through the mediator. Ask Eli and he will teach you. He tried to teach that to his sons, but his sons' hearts were hardened because the Lord did not want to save them. So your righteousness will condemn you. Even if you were blameless, your righteousness is the righteousness of a man. That's what Job was arguing. The righteousness of the gospel is God's righteousness, which is by faith alone in Christ alone. So as we commemorate the Lord's table, we praise God through Jesus Christ for giving us the knowledge of the who person, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and the mediator, the only mediator between God and sinful man. We praise God for Jesus Christ for giving us the blood of his own son by which we can draw near to him 
in confidence by which the rod of condemnation that was on us was removed. And his blood made peace, everlasting, permanent, eternal peace between us and God. And we don't have to take God to court. (laughs) We don't have, we have Christ Jesus and God has entered into court with us in Christ Jesus. And so when Christ was on the cross, that was us in court. God and man with Christ on the cross brought together in the court and settling matters. That's how it happened. So may our testimony be as Job's testimony. Job said, for I know, the believer has to know. Job was confident. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. That is the hope of the Christian. And he shall stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after I have died, this I know again, <laughs> that in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see him. I shall see him. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I shall see him. I shall see Christ. How my heart yearns within, within me. How my heart yearns within me. So the gospel message has to produce a yearning for God's people to see their Redeemer. To see their Redeemer. I know, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. And my eyes shall behold and not another. And my heart, how my heart yearns within me to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our mediator, our redeemer, the one who poured out his blood that we may see God face to face, that we may speak to you and be heard, that we may appear before you without spot or blemish. Lord, what a wonderful work that Christ has accomplished for his people in his incarnation, in his life, in his death and resurrection. What a beautiful gospel. What a glorious gospel this is. Lord, we just thank you for giving us understanding of all these mysteries. These things have not been revealed to many people. And yet, by grace, you continue to teach them to your people. Lord, we just thank you and we honor you for this message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.